backroom politics. And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means that if there's not a hurricane, it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. We are doing a remote show this week. I am your moderator, Justin Russell. I am broadcasting from Hurricane Ravaged, Florida on the East Coast. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, he is the retired one-star admiral from your United States Navy. He is the man we know as Admiral Ken Carradine. Admiral Ken, how you doing? Uh, doing well, Justin. Glad to hear that you and family are safe and sound. We we are, thank you. And joining me as he does every Tuesday when we have a show and there's not a hurricane, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs who served at last count under four presidents. He is longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington insider, Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hey, Justin. So uh, I, I want to take moderator privilege real quick and talk about uh, why we were not on the on the air the last couple of weeks. And, and, and just I, I want to kind of kick off the show and talk about what's been happening. Uh, for those who don't, for those who follow us regularly, uh, we've not had a show the past two weeks. Reason being is uh, I was dispatched to Houston, Texas for my normal paying job uh, and spent two weeks, uh, a couple of days before the storm, during the storm, and then and dealt with the aftermath of the storm uh, known as Hurricane Harvey. Uh, Harvey came ashore uh, in the uh, southeast coast of Texas as a Category 4 storm, uh, basically just throttled uh, places like uh, Port Aransas, uh, down to the, down to south, almost to Brownsville, and then kind of stuck around Houston and dropped. At one number I heard was over 10 trillion gallons of water over the southeastern coast of Texas, which eventually caused the flooding of the fourth largest metropolitan area in the country. Uh, I, will, I thought that I would, I, I've worked natural disasters uh, for 30 years of some sort, uh, responded to Andrew, uh, saw Hugo, uh, lived through Hurricane George down in the Keys, which we'll get to, uh, Hurricane Aaron, uh, Francis and Jean lost a house in Francis and Jean in Florida in 2004. Uh, been involved with the response regarding Hurricane Katrina. I had thought I'd seen the worst in Katrina, and I will tell you what I saw in Houston, I thought would be the worst I would ever see. Uh, but I do want to say this what I saw in Houston. As devastating, as catastrophic as it was, the scenes that I saw play out live and the stories that I saw or the stories that I heard come together in Houston after the, after, during and after the storm, the stories of cooperation, Texans and people from out of state just coming and volunteering, the humanity that was displayed during and after Hurricane Harvey in not just Rockport and, and the, the truly wind-damaged areas, 
but the flooded areas of Houston, Beaumont, Port Arthur was just absolutely stellar. And I, I cannot, as much as it broke my heart to see the damage and destruction that Harvey did, it, it, it warned my heart to know that there is still humanity, that regardless of your political affiliation, regardless of your race, your religion, your creed, color, sexual orientation, people can and still do come together in times of crisis, and they come together, and they will help and be there and, and be there out. I left Houston uh, about, uh, about a, a few days ago prior to the hurricane warnings for Hurricane Irma. Um, I have family here. I've, I've had connections in Florida. My parents live in uh, New Smyrna Beach, uh, I, I, which is where we're broadcasting from. I will tell you that when I saw the hurricane warnings, I immediately got on a plane, left Houston, came here to Florida to be with family. And it was uh, – I've never used this term before. When dealing with a hurricane, I was scared for this hurricane. The damage, the destruction that I have seen and the reports I've gotten from talking to my sources in, uh, in, in, the, in the greater Antilles, in the Virgin Islands, talking, been in constant contact with FEMA headquarters and operation centers throughout uh, the Caribbean, uh, the amount of destruction that Hurricane Irma has brought, and then to see the destruction that it has wrought over the, the, the Florida Keys, which if people know me know that it, it, that's a very dear place in my heart. I spent a lot of time down in the Keys uh, prior to moving to Washington, D.C. Uh, the destruction that's down there, the absolute humanitarian crisis of both of these, but the humanitarian crisis that we're seeing after Irma Literally two thirds of the state of Florida are still currently without power. Over seven million people at last count. Now I've not been updated on the latest ones that might have gone down today, but there was a, at, at the high point seven million people without power. There was some three and a half million people without running water after the passing of Irma through the peninsula. It is. It is dire. To say that the situation, from what I'm hearing in the Keys, is dire, it is. What I'm hearing from people in Marco Island, down in Naples, down in Collier County, Monroe County, uh, even on the eastern side of the wall, Dade County, Palm Beach, even up as far as Brevard County, where uh, where I I live uh, from time to time, it, it is truly, truly not only amazing but just heartbreaking to see what is happening. And again, people are coming together to help each other out. Now, I I appreciate you guys letting me kind of uh, go off on that, uh, go off on that for a little bit, but this is obviously something that we're going to continue uh, and talk about. Um, I want to start off, Admiral Ken, uh, you know, we we saw the devastation of Harvey. We, we, We saw that we're seeing now and just, scratching the surface of the devastation of Hurricane Irma. How, how destructive to the economy could this be 
with both of these coming back to back as far as short term and long term in your view? Uh, I think uh, it's going to be uh, immediate, and I think it's going to be long term. Uh, we're already seeing uh, seeing it show up in the, in gasoline prices. Um, I think the thing that makes um, Hurricane Irma um, so unique, uh, like you, spent a lot of time in Florida around the coast, did, I want to say, three hurricane evacuations between 1982 and 1984, and rode, actually rode one out in the shipyard. But I think what, what uh, makes this one unique is the first time I've seen a hurricane cover the entire state of Florida. It's one thing when a coast gets impacted, like the, 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 uh, the Gulf Coast with, uh, with Harvey uh, and um, uh, the Atlantic Coast with, with Andrew and a few others. But this, this hurricane, it, it got both coasts, the interior and then some. And so I think, quite frankly, um, um, the, the administration, um, the, the federal government, it is going to be hard-pressed uh, not to make this the focus of its um, economic attention for, uh, for the foreseeable future. Alan Warren, is this, are these two events big enough? Now, we've seen like the stock market be on a high. We saw oil prices come down pre-Harvey storms. Uh, is, is, is this something that's going to be, in your view, detrimental to the economy short and long term as well? Hard to know uh, about economic effect. Let me, I'll speak to that in a moment. But first, let me just thank you for the, you know, sort of your personal reflections and observations. And kudos to you for being down there, hanging in and participating, um, you know, as a, as a pair of hands, of knowledgeable hands uh, in, in a disaster of this, this sort. It takes tens of thousands of people, but but uh, you you brought two hands and and uh, and thank you for that. Um, Appreciate it. Thanks. E- e- economic impact. Um, it's it's big. It's gonna it's gonna create an interesting set of challenges in the Congress um, because the 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 deal which I know we'll be talking about. Um, uh, of last week, where where the president um, su- surprisingly sided with with Senator the Democrat leaders uh, Senator Chuck Schumer and Congressman uh, uh, Nancy Lane. Pelosi, right. is yeah it is simply a a down payment. Uh, it was around nine billion dollars to replenish FEMA funds. And that was put together before the the real scope of Irma uh, was becoming clear, uh, and it's not it doesn't begin to be enough to to pay what what the federal government uh, I'm confident will be paying in 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 Texas uh, in for Harvey, uh, where the early estimates are that the economic costs there will be larger than they are in Florida. Um, that remains to be seen, um, but uh, and it's not as though the federal government suddenly has to come in and make everybody whole. That's not the idea. The system doesn't work like that. But the but but the federal government 
will make massive uh, contributions in the tens of billions of dollars. We what, what we have in in Washington is an ongoing willingness to come up with big time money to deal with natural disasters. Um, uh, it, it, it's never completely simple. Let me just jump in real quick. Cause I want to ask you a, a question on this is, you, you know, yeah. we, we look at the financial impact that occurred after hurricane Katrina and yep. the economic impact of, Harvey alone was going to surpass Katrina, apparently. How does our economy absorb two of these back-to-back in one, I mean, literally within three weeks of each other? Is it possible? Can we absorb it? Yeah, I mean, Sandy was more expensive uh, because of where it hit uh, than, than Katrina was in terms of the U.S. government uh, contribution, um, and and I I can't begin to sort of assess what where the government comes in, where private insurance companies come in, and where individuals who 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 in many cases chose not to insure themselves uh, and their property, um, uh, where all those things fall out. But in a in a twenty trillion dollar economy um uh we 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 can absorb a a 50 billion dollar hit now not simple not easy not without pain not without consideration of can we do this should should there be offsets where do we draw the line with where we help and 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 where we have to simply say uh, we're sorry, and it's not just the federal government. Uh, state and local governments um, uh, ha- have a role in this too. But it's it's all localized. And when we talk about oil prices, they went up. And and I'm thinking about oil prices around here in in, in Washington D.C. They went up about twenty to thirty cents a gallon. They're going to come back down because the refineries open again, and there's all sorts of oil sitting offshore in tankers waiting to come in. There's also some refined product waiting to come in. Um, It's just waiting for the opportunity for ports to reopen, for refineries to reopen. It's not nothing when gas prices go up 10 or 20 cents, but it's not devastating uh, to the economy. The, The one thing that that hurricane response does, and in, in, in my thinking though, is it does push the the Congress together. Um, you'll get Republicans and Democrats. They'll argue about the details and what else should be packaged, but they tend to uh, come together to provide significant billions of dollars uh, to help uh, uh, to help in recovery. Uh, from both natural disasters and in the case of of 9-11, which we were all reflecting upon this week, um, tens of billions of dollars uh, to New York to to help pay for the costs associated with uh, 
uh, with the attacks on on the Twin Towers and then, of course, at the Pentagon. Um, so, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. I, 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 I'm just saying I don't – our economy is big and strong and – this is not this is not nothing but it's but it is not uh a huge uh it doesn't have the potential for huge damage uh to the national economy notwithstand you know which which doesn't help the the, the local folks um right. and uh and it does tend to drive the, the politics together which can be a good thing right Admiral Ken, you know alan moore brought up the idea, uh, you know, brought up Hurricane Sandy and the fall under Katrina. Uh, the, the the politics of this, we saw Senator Ted Cruz literally get just publicly skewered by the New York and Washington media when he started saying we will bring funding, the funding's not a problem, after he voted against the bill that had Hurricane Sandy money involved in it, is, is, there, is there going to be pushback on people like Senator Ted Cruz uh, and others like him that voted against the Sandy money that now are literally saying, oh, well, we need the money for here. This is really a big problem. How do they justify it, and how can they not get pushback from that? I, I... – I am hopeful that um, that uh, Allen's um, synopsis of of the behavior of Congress um, is as accurate uh, as as we all hope that it should be. I think one I knew you were going to ask me about Ted Cruz because I'm from Texas, right. <laughs> and two. <laughs> and two uh, I, I wish I could come up with a really, really good excuse as to why the senator felt it was necessary for him to, you know, to to to, to uh, be a, one of the the more vocal naysayers. The only thing I can come up with is that, you know, he has always been, and he's consistent in this regard. He's always been all about uh, saying the constitute the constitution uh, authorizes this or it authorizes that, um, and that's quite, no, frankly, the best defense I can give I can give him. My my hope is that. Um, that at the end of the day, uh, when uh, when the representatives in, in the House and the Senate come together, um, they take a hard look at the fact that that but for the grace of God, it could be any one of their districts, uh, and from anything from a a wildfire to a, an earthquake to a hurricane or a large storm that might spawn a number of different tornadoes, as we've seen throughout uh, the uh, the Midwest from time to time. Um, you know, we we've, we 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 spend a lot of time on this air uh, talking about the, um, the the voices in Washington D.C. and other places that act to divide us. Um, it's it's kind of a shame that it takes something of uh, two storms of the type that we have seen in two weeks to basically be the catalyst for driving us together. But I think that's what I'm hoping that's what we're going to see, at least in that does- regard. Alan Moore, does Ted Cruz and, and others like Senator Rand Paul, do they have to atone for their vote on the Sandy funding for this? Or is this something that, hey, if they vote for it, we'll give them a pass? Well, <laughs> he, 
he has taken an enormous amount of grief uh, for this, and uh, it doesn't simply because he voted against the the Sandy aid, um, and then desperately uh, wants and expects uh, Texas aid. Uh, is uh, is 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 awkward for him, but it's not a it's not a reason to say, okay, sorry, Texas, you have this jerk Ted Cruz representing you, and because he wouldn't support money for Sandy, we're not going to help our Texas citizens. America doesn't it, function like that. Fortunately, Alan, Alan, is the criticism no, no, justified? The, the criticism of Cruz? Yes. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, and. And, and what, what, was, what was interesting was Cruz was asked about this, of course, and he came up with an explanation that was false. He basically tried to say, well, the Sandy bill was, was larded up with all of this other unrelated stuff. Well, all the fact check organizations said, actually, it didn't. Um, virtually all the money had to do with some disaster or another, the overwhelming majority of it was for was for Hurricane Sandy. There were a few other disasters that had occurred that got some millions of dollars that were attached to that particular bill. But his explanation was just wrong. At least he tried to he came up with something. It just wasn't true. Um, so Admiral so Ken, Admiral Ken, he oh, he will have to live with he will have to live with the hypocrisy associated with uh, his vote on Sandy, his expectations regarding Harvey, and the uh, erroneous explanation that he pathetically uh, put out to explain it. Because Admiral Ken, you know what's funny is that. Alan brings up a good point is uh, during the response to Hurricane uh, Harvey, which and, and I was there watching him say this, that the reason why he did not vote for the Sandy funding was because it was attached to other basically pork items of sort. The funny thing about it is he was proven wrong. The fact checkers proved him wrong. Uh, Like Alan said, it was a bill that did money for other disasters. But here's the funny thing is – and we were going to talk about it. We might as well bring it up now – is that in the Oval Office the other day, President Trump struck a deal with Senator Chuck Schumer, the majority leader of the U.S. Senate, and uh, minority leader Nancy Pelosi out of the House of Representatives – struck a deal without conferring with the Republicans and attaching the debt ceiling to initial down payment funding for Hurricane Harvey, does Senator Ted Cruz vote that down? Because this is exactly what he said he voted down two years ago. Does he have to vote this down, or what does he do here? So to be clear, my understanding is that that not so much past the debt ceiling, but they extended it, I think, through uh, November, December. Correct. Uh, and, and, and I think he will vote it down based on based one, because um, uh, one, uh, it's for – well, I'm sorry. He won't vote it down because it's only an extension of, of, uh, of, of the big decision that's got to be made in November, December. Uh, he won't vote it down because he's already eating a substantial amount of crow, 
um, because of the aforementioned um, decisions that he made with regard to Sandy funding. And in in case anyone's not watching, and the best way I can say it, their poppycock detector should be going off big time where Senator Cruz is concerned. So here's here's a question for you, Ellen Moore. Knowing the Senate, you you were a longtime Senate staffer, you you know the process. Was it a smart move to attach the hurricane funding to the debt limit extension, or should this have been come out as a clean bill? Okay, so – so, so you're only you're, you're, you've only described two legs of a three-legged stool, and it's important to add that third leg. The third leg is to fund all of government on a continuing, oh, continuing resolution. resolution. Yeah, sorry about that. Through the end of the year. So, no, no, right. no, no, no. It's okay. It was it was like a package deal. We're gonna right. we're 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 gonna make this down payment on. Uh, on Harvey to to refill the FEMA coffers, uh, knowing we're going to have to pay more money later, and this money will be spent within the next few months. The the then the question is, we need the, the debt limit is we're bumping up against the the, the government's debt uh, authority to borrow money around the end of this month. Everyone has known and kind of dreaded the fact that we had to increase the debt limit, and and we have the, 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 we have decided to push that that sort of uh, due date um, uh, to the end of the year, and we decided to fund all of government through December 31st. The, the, the debt ceiling piece is this is a little bit getting into the weeds. The debt ceiling piece is a little looser than the end of the year, and there's some authority to borrow money from different agencies, which apparently uh, makes the, the 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 drop dead date sometime in the in the a few months after the end of the year the the should it have been separate or not i don't know it it, it the, the the deal let me say this the deal did not offend me in its substance the deal was offensive to republicans because in a meeting in the oval office when the president Pelosi, Schumer, uh, Majority Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, House Speaker uh, Paul Ryan, um, and House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy—they're all present, along with the Treasury Secretary, discussing this stuff. Out of the blue, the President simply ignores his Treasury Secretary and the Republicans who want a longer debt ceiling period of time and believe they could get it as part of this little package. The president, without warning, without conversation ahead of time, simply sides with Schumer and Pelosi and says, let's do it that way. Let's tie all three together, aiming at the end of the year. That was the outrage from my standpoint. You don't do that to your allies. If you're going to go that way, fine. But don't surprise them in front of the Democrats. Um, and and it, it created a kind of breach that is new territory between the president and the Republicans. If, if he wants to do that, let him do that. But don't surprise your allies. 
by publicly embarrassing them in a meeting in the Oval Office. Let me ask this question, Admiral Ken. Does does this put Senator Cruz and and by the way, other senators like Senator Paul uh, uh, and, and and several that followers of them, does, does this force them to have to make a decision of taking the hit for not voting in money for FEMA and for disaster response and stick to their principles, or are they going to lose support from their base for voting for this bill for the humanitarian assistance and disaster response in lieu of the extension of the debt ceiling and the continuing resolution? I have let no me, idea. Uh, let, let me, yeah, let me, let me just interrupt for a second. They have already voted, Justin. They've yeah. voted, seventeen Republicans said no to this deal, but this is a oh, done they deal. Did. This has, I, I, yes. I, yeah, unfortunately, so, I've not. Seen no, that. I wanted to be sure you knew that. So, so there were seventeen Republicans who said, including people like John McCain, Lindsey Graham, Bob Corker. It's, it's, it's a, it's an interesting group of folks who knew that they weren't going to be able to stop it, but who were, in, in a way, registering their objection to the way it was done and the way it was packaged. Um, so I'll, I'll, go, I'll let you go back oh, to Ken, but I okay, want to make so, sure you so, understood. This was this is done. This is the law. It's been signed. So, and, all right, and I think the big, the big takeaway, the big takeaway, I think, will allude to um, a segment that we're, that's, that's following up. And, and that is the the president's um, disregard uh, toward members of what he feels is the Republican establishment. He 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 is he is he is these he has shown through that action and then uh, and then that way of of uh, making a quote deal unquote. Uh, he is willing to say, you know what, screw you. Uh, I'm going to do what I want to do here. And if you don't go my way, I'll embarrass you. Now, it's an interesting way to behave toward people that you need, but it is his way. So, uh, you know, with regard to the extension and the funding for the hurricanes, yeah, it's like, like Alan said, that's a done deal. It's, 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 it's done. But the, the fact of the matter is, though, it remains to be seen uh, how much damage he did to himself as well as to the party uh, in the process. Well, I want to take this up. I want to take this up after the break. I want to take a quick break and uh, uh, get our thoughts together. One one of the things I do want to say, I do want to give a tremendous shout out to a a few, few folks. Number one, I want to give a shout out to mayor Sylvester, the mayor of Houston, uh, who, you know, is an absolute rock star and showed his true leadership during the situation with Hurricane Harvey. Uh, The amount of briefings that he gave, the fact that he stayed in, he was criticized uh, by a lot of armchair quarterbacks for not evacuating the city of Houston beforehand. He stood up to them, ignored them in many instances, and managed the crisis and was a source of strength for a lot of Houstonians. I also want to give a shout out to uh, Governor Abbott of Texas uh, and, and, and the way that he handled the state operations out of Austin. Uh, absolute stunning, stunning examples of leadership. 
could not do this without saying to the folks from FEMA, to the first responder community in Harris County, Houston, all across Texas, uh, the Coast Guard uh, earned their money. And then the, the thousands of volunteers in the Cajun Navy and the, and, the, and, the, and the neighbors who just had boats that went out and rescued people in some really bad weather. Absolute shout outs to those folks. It, it, I, don't, I think the situation would have been dramatically worse had it not been for all of those folks. So I just want to give a shout out. When we come back, we're going to talk about – we're going to continue talking about the politics of, of hurricanes and the big deal that was done in the Oval Office. Uh, this is the best political radio show you've never heard of. Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. This is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in a few minutes. Stay with us. politics. We'll be back momentarily. Stay with us. Still in my heart. 
backroom politics. And this is the best political talk show you've never heard of live from Florida and the National Capital Region. There we go. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me as we do every Tuesday is Admiral Ken Carradine and the Honorable Alan Moore. Uh, we're talking about the politics of natural disasters and the big deal that was made with the Democrat leadership by the president. You know, backdoor deal. Let's talk about this for a second. Is this going to continue the downward spiral? Admiral Ken of congressional Republican support for the president. Is this just another amateur misstep or did he really do damage to his credibility on the Hill? Well, you know, I, I, I gotta tell you, um, I, I, I probably was, was pretty shocked. Um, when, when I saw the report of what went down, um, I think that it's, it's safe to say that, um, he didn't make any friends, that's for sure. Not that many. Uh, and, and I think if he probably put a few people who were, who were, quote, his friends on notice that, boy, uh, I can't imagine being in a meeting thinking that we've got something going with, with the boss and then him turned around and, uh, and, um, and him, him uh, changing his mind on us without even a clue or a wink. Um, I, I, you know, you, you, everybody on this call has been in business for, for quite some time. And I can't imagine um, me having a lot of faith um, in uh, in a partner uh, that would uh, that would just openly do something like this. So uh, a downward spiral. I think it, if nothing, it, it does it continue. Yeah, I think it it, it does. How how much uh, it puts the nose down on the airplane? I have no idea. Alan, more question to you: How does the president? How does the president's street cred get hit? After this deal with McConnell and with Pelosi, you know, with uh, Schumer and Pelosi. Well, uh, let, let's start by acknowledging that the guy didn't have a lot of street cred in the beginning. <laughs> um, he, this is not the first time that he's undercut uh, Republicans. Uh, he's famously tweeted uh, ugly things about uh, about Mitch McConnell, about uh, lesser, but to some extent, Paul Ryan. Uh, other Republicans uh, calling out particular senators by name, saying he might be supporting uh, the, the primary challengers to uh, a handful of Republicans who are up uh, this time. Um, he, 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 he blames Republicans for failure to get stuff done, even as he himself often the effort in the middle of, uh, of, of a delicate uh, uh, conversation, not least of all in the repeal and replace uh, Obamacare, when his own actions and those of, of one cabinet member um, made it virtually impossible for Lisa Murkowski to vote for the the bill in which they needed 50 votes um uh, he is he is not a person who understands how to deal with legislatures how to massage uh how to massage them how to put coalitions together he's much more in the moment transactional follow his gut um the future will take care of itself and and as he does damage between uh allies um 
he makes it all the harder in a, in a, in a very tight situation, particularly in the Senate, to get anything done by, by joining up with Schumer and Pelosi and then getting some positive press. That's the, from the standpoint of people trying to help him understand how Washington works. That was the worst possible outcome. He's then <laughs> bragging about, about how, uh, what, what CNN uh, and others have said, hey, he's a deal maker. Look, he can, he can work with the other side. They hate him. Democrats hate Donald Trump. He's oh, winning hey. nothing with them. But, but here's a particular case where they say, look, if we see something that we think is going to be good for Democrats and good for the country, of course, we'll work with him. But Alan, they despise him. Alan, let's go to our resident Democrat joining us on the line right now. He is the man, former Joe, uh, former Uncle Joe Biden presidential, the vice presidential political operative and bar certified attorney in the great state of um, Maryland and the District of Columbia. He is Dan Littner Esquire. Daniel, how you doing? I'm doing well. I can't be with you all for long, but I did just hear the little tidbit about the deal cut with uh, Nancy Pelosi and uh, and Minority Leader Schumer, and I thought I needed to chime in. No, please go right ahead. Show, tell us how this so, is a good this is a good deal. Well, I, for starters, let's just go with the the getting the debt ceiling off of the political stage, at least temporarily, and actually setting aside money for the hurricanes was the right thing to do. So let's just start there, as opposed to playing politics and trying to manipulate the situation. However, Alan is absolutely right. The, as far as the president's politics, there's sort of no upside to this other than the, the short-term headlines. He's not, the president's not going to make any headway with Democrats because he's already managed to alienate them on all these other social issue fronts. So there's, there's no there there for him to come back to. He would have to spend the next three years to maybe undo some of the things he's done in the first six months. As far as then go, looking into the Republican realm, the undercutting McConnell and Paul Ryan, who apparently is taking the blame for this deal, even though it's not his fault. Um, there's also the fiscal hawks, which see the debt limit as a tool to club over the head of the Washington establishment to push through draconian cuts in government. He's now managed to alienate those folks, too. So I'm not quite certain as far as what the outcome of inside the beltway politics is where the upside is for the president. Other than, again, it was sort of the right thing to do. Admiral Ken, you agree? Admiral Ken? I do. Sorry, I do. I, I couldn't get the, the mute button off. <laughs> uh, I do. Um, he, um, and I agree with Alan as well. Um, there, this is this is he has not done himself any favors with anybody on on uh, in this regard. But but here's a question, Alan Moore is: Has he put his supporters like Joni Ernst, Mike Enzi, uh, Ted Cruz, uh, you know, even even Rand Paul, Pat Roberts, has he put them in an awkward position of having to make the decision of voting? 
for your principles or voting for saving people's lives? I, I, I don't think it, it, it was quite that kind of a decision. Uh, the, the 17 people who voted uh, against the, the 17 senators, all Republicans who voted against this deal, uh, had had different reasons. Ted Cruz was was not one of them. Uh, uh, neither was John Cornyn, both of whom are from Texas, both of whom voted right. against the Hurricane Sandy uh, relief uh, 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 a couple of years ago. Um, so they just what 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 people like in politics is some loyalty, some predictability, a notion that. Uh, some fairly rigorous analysis will go into uh, consideration of things. And then uh, people in the same party, people in opposing parties will often disagree on the best uh, way to move forward. Um, and I think that the, that the Republicans felt that there, that there was a better way here, that there was a chance to, to push the, uh, the debt limit challenge uh, off until after the 2018 elections. That was a, a big-time objective of theirs. They think they might have succeeded in that um, had the president not abandoned them. Um, it, it, I don't know if they could have succeeded in that. Um, well, no one will ever know because the president, uh, uh, in the moment, um, again, over the advice of his own people, the Se- Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, in the meeting, was arguing for for the longer period, and then when the president started showing some interest in in the, in a mere three month extension, uh, there was an effort. Well, it should be at least six months, which would have been a which which could have been a compromise. Again, there's nothing magic about three months, six months, eighteen months. It's it's a fight that 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 as Dan accurately says uh, has has come to symbolize an opportunity. Uh, for people to score points and sometimes uh, make some legislative changes on the spending side. Um, the, the fiscal hawks in particular uh, have, in, in, have, have taken advantage of this, saying if we're going to raise the debt, you've got to show some willingness to be more disciplined on the spending side. But it's not clear that either party over time has been a big winner or a big loser. It's just that the party in power is the one responsible for – preserving, protecting the, the creditworthiness of the United States. So they're the ones who have to somehow figure out how to get it done. This was, again, not the substance, the process, the manner. It was new territory. And I'm, I'm afraid that the president, having got some positive press for being willing to cut a deal with the other side, learned what I consider to be the wrong lesson. And he may think, oh, I can do this. I can keep these guys uh, on their toes. When you turn on your partners, when you turn on the group that's already struggling to be on your side, to work with you, notwithstanding all of the what you consider to be bad judgment and bad behavior, when you harm that relationship, um, where does it lead? The president and the Democrats are not a new coalition that's going to be able to do things. There are more Republicans than there are Democrats. The irony here, the thing that's so surprising, is that the president seems able to cut deals with the Democrats and not lose <laughs> any support among his true-believing followers. 
Which and, makes it really awkward for Republicans and, to and, say, Mr. President, you can't do Admiral, that. We're not going to support you on this. Admiral Ken, go ahead. And, and, you know, Alan makes a great point. So, um, so uh, in in the in the uh, um, I guess in the area of shout outs, I'll give one out to the class of 1982 from my alma mater, the Naval Academy. We celebrated our 35th uh, class reunion this past weekend, and you know, being in the company of people who serve their country, who no longer have to watch what they say because most of us are retired now. Um, the conversations uh, one or two evenings and uh, with with several scotches in turned the politics, and uh, one of one of one of my my my, my classmates and uh, as, as a matter of fact a former roommate turned out to be one of Trump's most diehard supporters. Allen is absolutely right. The president can make deals. He can do whatever he wants to do. He can he can devolve into almost the most adolescent of behavior. And these people are not going to turn away from him. And this is a guy who, who flies airplanes for a living for, for an airline. I'm like going, oh, my God, I hope I don't get a plane with you because you're nuts. But you know what? That's who they are. Yeah. Yeah. But Dan Lipner, here's a question for you. Was this a victory that the Democrats will be able to squander or was this a shallow victory by all by all sorts? Well, it's definitely a shallow victory, and the undermining and creating havoc within the Republican Party is the biggest win. It's not actually a fully Democratic win. It's just the, ah, we've sown chaos with the other side. Um, but but to Admiral Ken's point, uh, there is something to be said about the how what the substance of the support for Trump is other than this weird populism that he represents. Um, I mean, I've argued for a while that as much as Democrats have said for years, we, we are this, uh, this party of all this kind of diversity, the, the Roosevelt co- uh, coalition that Democrats wanted have been trying to rebuild since we lost the House in 94 um, was a populist coalition of, of working class folks that have had some different ideologies on some pretty di- diverse issues with the exception of fighting for the working people who look like me and their neighbors. And I mean, they look like themselves and their neighbors and Trump represents that. So until he begins to tarnish that image with his face, I don't see them moving, unfortunately, because uh, policy doesn't matter. It's this imagery that seems to represent everything for them. I got to tell you something, though. Here, here's, here's, here's what boggles my mind is that you know, we've talked on the show that we want to see a president who is willing to work both sides of the aisle. But working both sides of the aisle does not mean taking a switchblade and sticking it into the back of your own party, which, I mean, Alan Moore, am I overstating that, or is that exactly what he did? No, that that was what I was saying before, that that by not even giving them a heads up, by sitting there in a meeting, and, and I, Ken was describing the, the kind of situation where you're <laughs> – where you're sitting in a meeting with your partner and you're talking about an adversary um, who you have to work with. Um, and 
And in the course of the meeting, you basically ignore your partner or partners and side without warning, without notice, um, with, with the adversary and leave your partner to struggle with, now what am I supposed to do? I've just been embarrassed um, in front of uh, uh, my adversary. I think what the head guy here has just decided is a mistake, and I wish I had known. I wish I had known. Then we could adjust. Then we could say, we disagree with you. Fair enough. Why don't we do it this way? You work with your allies. I mean, he needs his allies. He needs these Republicans. He is not going to be able to come to common cause with Democrats on very many things. And every time you, you turn on your allies and embarrass them, um, not to mention their disagreement on, on what you're doing and what, on what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. Um, you're hurting yourself in the long run. So he gets this short-term three-month solution, ticks off his allies, and, and, what, and what does he have to show for it other than that one more reminder that he can't be relied upon? Um, and uh, uh, he, he gets a few positive uh, uh, press articles about his willingness to make deals um, and, uh, and, and they ignore the underlying uh, increase in damage, increase in mistrust. Let me ask, let me ask this question real quick, and, and I want to go to Dan first. Dan, which is the bigger sin, the stabbing your own party in the back or the actual deal itself with the Dems? Oh, it's absolutely stabbing his party in the back. But it, to Alan's point, and and also to yours about the reaching apart across party lines, the the thing is, the president had he come into office that way, reaching apart across party lines to get things done. If he had done this right at the get-go, or something of its ilk, right at the get-go when he came into office, we would be looking at an entirely different presidency. But he came into office, slash and burn, saying incredible things and going entirely on one side, on the Republican side of every issue, calling both Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer names. Okay, it's great with your base. Good for you. But you're alienating every Democrat who may have been open-minded along the way. And then going along, six, same, the same drumbeat, and then turning – is political insanity because now what you've done is you've basically stabbed everyone. Who are your friends now? So he's done all the damage with Democrats. He's now doing additional damage with Republicans. And as I mentioned before, poor Paul Ryan is taking the blame for this. And the one thing that's still out there, and he's also, at least if the press is correct, He's still pissed off that Mitch McConnell hasn't had his back on these various different investigations going on, including with Mueller. So, yeah, I'm really thinking uh, McConnell nor Ryan are really going to get in the way of either Chambers investigations nor the Mueller investigation. What's let me, the let me, upside for them to, to stand in front of this train for the president? Admiral Ken, does, does this deal put his push for tax reform this year in jeopardy? Yeah, absolutely. Because so, put yourself in the place of a of, of a congressman. So I'm working on the committee uh, with the president's team, 
and we think we've got something work out that he's gonna that he's gonna support. You know, you know the Democrats. No disrespect to you, Dan, but you know the Democrats are not gonna like any kind of tax deal, anything the Republicans are gonna put on the table. But they'll come up with something. And so you're thinking you've got a deal. You walk into the office, and it's only a 50-50 chance you're going to walk out of there with the president nodding, yeah? Oh, yeah, absolutely it does. So let me ask this question to you, Dan Lipner. In, in the bottom line, can the Democrats capitalize on this? Does this light a fuse under their rear end for midterms? Oh, yeah, it does all sorts of things. It's the we, – we've done – We've shown that we can govern when given the chance, which the Republican Party has not in either chamber with the failure of health care reform, which was the number one issue for most Republican and Trump voters last cycle. So where the Democrats came into the room and given 15 minutes with the president said, look, we can cut a deal. We can get things done. See what the other side can't do. So there's that little nugget. And on top of it, the the Republicans are still wildly unpopular. So when the tax deal is pushed through and it's not quite as understandable to normal people as the health care issue was or as, as normal people thought the health care issue was. So it's going to be an inside baseball thing when, when you're working on capital gains cuts or trying to repatriate foreign revenue. Okay. Good luck with that as far as explaining to normal people how that's going to make sense for their pocketbook for the for average Americans who may or may not have money in the stock market. So, yeah, I, I it's not quite clear how whatever comes next is going to help the president. But I will say one thing I've proved we can't produce, pr- predict anything with, with this president. <laughs> that's true. I will give you that. I definitely will give you that. Hey, we're, I, I was going to take a break. If you guys are good, we're going to blow through the break because there's so much we've got to get to. Because uh, one of the things I also want to talk about, you know, speaking about uh, predicting this president, you know, one of the things that I noticed in flying down to Houston and getting to Houston on that Friday before the storm hit was the fact that while there is impending catastrophic storm approaching the Texas coastline, he goes out and gives a pardon to former Maricopa Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Then on top of that, when there is a storm approaching the U.S. Virgin Islands, the Florida Keys, and the entire southeast coast, he does away with DACA, or does he? Alan Moore, the, the ability – every president has utilized the 4 o'clock Friday news cycle to get something that they want to keep buried. But this president has made an art form of it, and in high, high levels. Has that backfired on him now? Is the news cycle now going past 3 o'clock on Friday? Well, <laughs> as – he turned that notion, the, the notion of burying on its head um, because of Harvey when he decided to take advantage of, of the fact that, that the country was focused on something and was tuning into the news uh, as opposed to getting ready for uh, a, a family weekend or a ball game or, or whatever by, by dropping the Arpeo pardon into that 
heavily uh, that, that, that period of, of exceptionally high attention being paid to the news and acknowledged it, acknowledged it after the fact. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I want everybody to know. Um, so uh, it, 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 it's a, it's a new, it, it's a new slant on, uh, uh, on the, on, on Friday afternoon. Uh, it's also, uh, a risky proposition. It pleases some people and offends a lot of other people, including a lot of Republicans, um, and and uh, I you know we're not always going to have a national disaster cropping up uh, coming into a weekend where everybody's got their eyes peeled. Um, but for but the next three years, guy, we have a national disaster yeah, going every mean, weekend. Yeah, the guy. <laughs> let's hope not. Good lord. Um, I, I I wanted to say one just one other thing about about Republicans and. You know, the, the, the Oval Office thing was particularly embarrassing because it was a small group of people in the Oval Office and in the middle of conversation. And the president just in a moment uh, uh, decides to pivot and say, let's do it that way. The Republicans are not about to say, well, good luck getting us to vote for it, Mr. President. That's not how they operate. That's not how they're going to do that. But it, as we've said, it, it puts that stuff in jeopardy. Uh, over the longer term, if you can't rely on your partner, then you and this is this is the relevance to tax reform and other legislative issues. We don't know if we can trust our president. So how far out on a limb can we go where he's going to he's going to cut us off? They they had notice of this back when the House passed the replace and repeal bill, which which took a which was heavy lifting and and politically risky. They have a little celebration, which was bizarre, as we all remember, at the White House afterwards. And then a few weeks later, when the issue is in the Senate, the president on uh, on national television says, yeah, well, the House bill is kind of mean. Completely cutting them off at the knees. Um, and so that that was a more visible one, more easy to understand to the to the common voter and really did great harm and damage to the Republican effort to get some kind of bill passed. He did that. Nobody else did that. He did that just as he and his folks tried to strong arm uh, Lisa Murkowski to be the deciding vote and and putting her in this position um, uh, to, to simply say no. I mean, Again and again and again, he has shown ignorance and and an unwillingness to to learn how to work with senators and congressmen who have constituents who they have to listen to. The the, the irony. One one last thought, and I'm sorry, but but the the, the irony in undercutting McConnell and Ryan is that, in my judgment, he has helped solidify their positions in their respective houses. There's some Ryan haters, no question, and some people who would love to see him replaced. Um, but by and large, when your president humiliates your leader and by extension um, your party in that house, people tend to rally around the leader, especially if they think he was done wrong. And 
McConnell, who's not very popular around the country, as as we all know, he's been demonized and vilified and uh, by 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 many. Um, notwithstanding the fact that a lot of people like me who've seen him and know him have enormous respect for him. I know we're in a very small minority. The, the, the Republican senators, um, with few exceptions, believe that he's the best leader for their party in the United States Senate. Um, and he's just not vulnerable right now to any kind of a, uh, of a challenge. That doesn't mean that he... That, that he's the first choice of all, but he's the first choice of most and a top choice of just about all. Um, and uh, uh, I, I don't know what that, how, how that helps him other than if any, somebody's, you know, Steve Bannon says, we got to get McConnell and Ryan out of there. Well, the way you get them out of there is by coming up, you know, sure you can harm them, but you have to come up with a challenger who can enjoy the support of a majority. And there's nobody in either house that's even close. I want to go back to I want to go back to I want to go back to the Arpaio, the Arpaio party for a second. Because yeah. one of the things I want to talk about is I don't know which you know we're talking about political sins here. Is I don't know which is the worst sin. Is Admiral Ken was it the fact that he did this with an impending natural disaster that was that would end up killing dozens of Americans uh, and he did it under the cover of that news cycle or was it the fact that he pardoned a guy who was sworn to uphold the law and the constitution and ended up defying it and giving the big middle finger to a judge and a court of law in the state that he was governing in or that he was sworn to uphold their laws, which is the bigger political sin? Uh, it's it's the latter, and and I'm and I'm glad you I'm glad you, you we 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 pivoted back to this. So there is a narrative out there amongst um, the Trump the, the 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 light Trump supporters as well as the diehard Trump supporters that the media and I guess by extension today that means us and the liberals. Uh, are going. Oh, let me tell you something, Ken. Let me just interrupt real quick. We are so included in that. We've got listeners down in Texas that I heard from. We are included in that. Trust me. Keep well, going. I, 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 I flinch at being called a liberal, um, but uh, and I, I guess I kind of flinch at being being part, being included in the media. But if it means that you know there's ratings and we're gonna start you know just becoming worldly famous, I'll take it. But <laughs> there is a narrative among among those groups of people that um, that that the media and the liberals are going crazy about Trump uh, doing a pardon when Obama did the same thing. And I said, and, and so to that to that group of people, I need for you to hear me very very clearly. We don't have a problem with the president uh, pardoning uh, a, someone. Presidents have been doing this now for as long as I can remember. That's not the issue. The issue is that the president pardoned someone who broke the law willfully, who also brought what appears to be his racial animus to his job. As a law enforcement officer, that is the issue here. Not the fact that he pardoned someone, but he pardoned someone who clearly broke the law and who clearly brought his racial issues to his job as a cop. And if you don't know what driving while black or driving while brown means, 
talk to somebody close to you, they'll explain it. But you see, here's here's the thing about it is uh, regarding that 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 point, Admiral, is that you know when when Donald Trump pardoned Joe Arpaio, Joe Arpaio was told by a judge and a sovereign court of law said, "Stop doing that. I am telling you, you are outside. It is my judicial and legal opinion." You are outside of the Constitution. Stop what you're doing immediately. And he did not listen. When he was again told by the court, if you do not stop, I will find you not only in contempt but criminal contempt for defying my lawful order, he continued and basically gave the finger to him. He is – this is a guy who – thought he was above the law, that he knew better than the judge and the courts, he felt that he was above it all and knew all and took himself not only to be law enforcement, but enforcement, judge, and jury all in one. And Donald Trump basically uh, not not only pardoned him, but basically blessed what he was doing as, you know what, I'm with you. Alan Moore, am I speaking out of turn on that? Is, is that is that what a lot of people are seeing, or am I in the minority? No, no, no. So, well, you know, I I, I think as in most things, the, 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 the supporters of the presidents are in the minority, uh, the, the president and, and, and most of his actions. Um, uh, so if you are opposed to the way he did it, um, you're in the majority now, or, or that he did it, or the way he did it. In my case, the, 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 my objection was that there were two, two, two things still happening in the Arpaio case. He was appealing the, the, the constitutionality of the crime itself. Fine, play it out. That's how it works. Um, and two, he was awaiting sentencing for... Uh, his his misdemeanor convictions. Now, typically, when you pardon someone, you do it after the all legal remedies have been exhausted. It's the logical way to do it. When you intervene in the middle of the process, um, it is a it, it it shows fundamental disrespect for the judicial system itself, for the for for the rule of law, and it's highly unusual. It's also highly unusual to do a pardon without conversation with the justice department, without consultation and get their opinion. Usually it's followed, not always, but you usually at least seek it. None of that was done. This was a case of the president wanting to, to reward a guy who had been in his corner from early on in the campaign. And he wanted to, in effect, Repay. Plus, he knew there were a lot of people who were supporters of him, Trump, who thought that Arpaio was a, a national hero uh, and had been uh, targeted unfairly and so on. So it, it, if if we had known the answer to the to the challenge of of, of the original uh, court order and if we'd known what his penalty was going to be, chances are. Uh, are very good that an 83-year-old sheriff is not going to get any jail time. Um, That doesn't mean that you still might not want to pardon him uh, if you're the president. But 
wait it out. Let the system run its course. Show respect for the, the, the rule of law and the process, and then decide on whatever grounds you choose to pardon. It's also very common that in cases of pardons, the, the sinner being pardoned um, uh, shows uh, some remorse. It's not absolutely required. Um, uh, it's a good idea. It's very common. But Arpaio never, never acknowledged uh, having done anything wrong in the first place. It was it Alan, just when you talk, made but because Alan, of that look arbitrary and, and, and kind of disrespectful of but Alan, the, talk, the rule of Alan, law and, talk, the, and the process. But Alan, when you talk to Trump supporters and you sit there and you say he basically pardoned somebody that thought he was above the law, they come back with arguments like, well, what's the difference between what Donald Trump did and what Richard Nixon did or what Gerald Ford did in parting Richard Nixon? How do they justify it that way? Well, so so they, and I've heard Trump himself said um, that that um, uh, that pardoning Arpaio was was how is that different than than Clinton? pardoning Mark Rich. And I thought, wait a minute, you want to be associated with that dirty, slimy business that, that embarrassed uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton. Uh, I thought, how, why would you be the one to raise that? Let your enemies bring that up with regard to Nixon, um, Gerald Ford, um, you know, I mean, you have to engage in these arguments with people. You say, look, he was president of the United States, resigning in disgrace. He was punished enough, a, and the country was punished enough and needed to move forward, and we didn't need to be mired in a, a six-month or year-long prosecution, uh, persecution, uh, both uh, of this disgraced president who suffered uh, uh, the ultimate uh, humiliation. Um, Arpaio was in the courts. It was it was a misdemeanor that he was convicted of or misdemeanors. Let the process play itself out, especially given, as you have accurately pointed out, that the guy just bald faced ignored with contempt a court order right. that right. Uh, if he thought it was illegal, then make your case, prove it. Don't but don't it, interfere. Don't interrupt. And then as Ken so accurately described, here's a law enforcement officer um, under court order with a history of racist behavior and contempt. Who wants to be associated with that? Well, his president embraced it. He embraced it. Yep. So yep. here's the here's the other question is. And at the same time that we're talking about this, Admiral Ken, the other Friday night bombshell, or actually, I think it even might have been a Monday morning bombshell, as Irma was making landfall, uh, was the DACA announcement. The fact that the Trump administration announces that they are doing away with DACA and they punt it to Congress. Admiral Ken, first of all, I look at it this way. I think it was an absolute cowardly move by the Trump administration to force the Attorney General Jeff Sessions to announce the, the disbanding of DACA 
and to do it when he did it during a national disaster, and to go around and stab his own attorney general in the back and saying, well, we're going to kick it back to Congress. And then he says, oh, wait a minute. If it's not done in six months, I'll revisit it, and I'll probably put it back into place. This may, none of this makes sense, Admiral Ken. How do we even connect these dots? It, it makes sense uh, if, you, if you approach it from the perspective that the president probably knows a little bit more than how to spell DACA on this subject. And his opinion, his opinion as well as um, his position on it, is with a lot of things that are complicated, is evolving as he understand as he understands it. So in 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 Ken Carradine's little world, here's what happened. Hey, President, we got to do something about this DACA thing. Yeah, let's kill it. Makes an announcement. Oh, oh, wait a minute. We said we like those people. Uh, you know what? Let let let's let's let let's kick it to Congress and see what they can do with it. And oh, by the way. If Congress screws this thing up, it'll just be one more reason I can I can throw stones at uh, at, uh, at McConnell and um, and Paul Ryan. Oh, and if they and if they happen to screw it up, I can be the savior and I can step in and and, and uh, do another deal like the one I did with Pelosi and uh, and Chuck Schumer. I, I I if if that sounds very cynical, that's because I've lost I finally lost faith. Um, and it's only in that regard can I basically put any kind of um, any kind of um, method to what's going on behind what what comes out of that White House. Let me ask a question though, because if he does play this game with DACA, and and for those who are listening uh, abroad who do not know what DACA means, we're talking about the deferred action of children, child or children arrivals in the United States. Uh, part of what they call the Dreamers program. Uh, but Alan Moore, when we talk about DACA and the flip-flopping that he's doing on a daily basis on DACA, is his base going to see through this, and will the base start leaving Trump camp? <laughs> no. <laughs> if only. If only. The, 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 as, as Ken was describing, as, as I was saying, and then as Ken was describing some of the people he knows, that the fact that Trump defies expectations, defies norms, thumbs his nose at the establishment of Republican leaders, Democrat leaders, the press, they love it. Um, now there is a there's also an under an, an undercurrent of of with many of his supporters uh, I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't pretend to guess what proportion who really are in their core uh, you know have have racist leanings and 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 indications so there's some folks who say. If they're here illegally, I don't care why. Get them the hell out. Uh, it won't affect my life, and it, if it affects people in some states, not my problem. So there, 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 yeah. there, there's, there, there's some of that. People who stop and reflect and think about it and say, wait a minute, who are these people? How many of them are there? What harm are they doing? What, what contribution are they making? But then they'll simply say, if confronted with, with facts that, that show there's a whole host of positives, 
Um, I have a notion that in America we we <laughs> we we have a big heart and we don't uh, we we don't penalize particularly children who happen to be associated with parents who chose to violate a law. You'll remember the history here, though. President Obama was asked time and again by Hispanic organizations in particular why he couldn't take some action to, to protect these children. He said, I'm a constitutional lawyer. I taught constitutional law. I don't have the power to do this. Only Congress can do this. And then ultimately he changed his mind. And he basically right. changed his mind by, by, by putting this policy into place saying the, the, the executive branch has the ability to decide what cases to prosecute. We're deciding not to prosecute any of these cases, period, in, to the tune of 850,000 people that, that we can identify. And we're going to give them some, some rights to be able to, to try to bring them out of the shadows, identify themselves, and we'll, and we'll give them work permits, and we'll let them enroll in schools openly, et cetera. And that has been challenged. That policy under the constitutional principles that President Obama used to invoke, that he didn't have the power, uh, they're, they're, <laughs> moving through the courts is the question of whether the, the executive branch, meaning the Obama initial rule, was in fact constitutional. That's puttering along, moving at whatever pace. And then one of the issues that President Obama, uh, excuse me, candidate Trump started talking about was we're getting rid of DACA. So arguably he is, again, short-circuiting the, uh, the normal legal process and in, in trying to fulfill a campaign contribu- uh, uh, promise. But campaign promise that he previously months ago said this is really complicated we don't want to harm these 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 people so he's he knows a little more than (laughs) on this issue than probably some others because he did acknowledge that it was that it was complicated and not a simple matter of just saying no why he chose now is really the interesting question um because he could simply say it's in the courts. Let's see what happens. Um, and meanwhile, encourage the Congress to act instead of challenging the Congress to act by saying, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna to change the original executive order, but I'm really not going to change it. I'm simply announcing that I'm going to change it six months from now, giving the Congress time to act at least on this issue. Which the but Congress then, has shown an inability to do. But but, he, but here's the thing: is a bizarre. It's a bizarre setup. And then, as Ken pointed out, he's also, or one of you guys pointed out, he's also said, you know, six months from now, if the Congress hasn't acted, then we'll have another look. Yeah, keeping but the door the open is, to the fact that he may change his mind again. But it, but here's the thing: is then we see, and I have not seen it yet. I apologize, but I've only read clippings of. The Steve Bannon interview with Charlie Rose on 60 Minutes on Sunday, and Steve is Steve Bannon still part of the equation in all this? Well, well, Bannon says. Uh, so I, I've watched I've watched the uh, the interview twice, and I've even tried to go out to um, um, 60 Minutes. Um, I guess. Um, uh, beyond or outtakes or whatever they call it. Um, 
Bannon has has decided that he is going. Uh, he he says he's going to be Trump's wingman outside the White House. That he is going to uh, um, basically align himself with the president to destroy the uh, the Republican establishment, which has been over twenty five to thirty years in the making, uh, created by the Clintons as well as the Bushes. He really has a great deal of animus toward the Bush toward the, uh, both Bushes. Um, um, he feels that uh, the the uh, the people who fall under DACA uh, need to need to just go ahead and self deport. That 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 would be okay with him. Um, even uh, was taken the task by Charlie Rose by saying, you know, you know, America is, you know, this is the thing that makes us different from other countries is that, you know, we allow immigrants. And he goes in uh, Bannon called him on and says no. Um, uh, American in, uh, industrialism uh, is is the thing that 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 made us great, uh, and that those things were all done by U.S. citizens and, and not by anyone who who came to us from a foreign land. I guess he forgot about Einstein, and and most of the uh, the scientists who gave us the ability to drop a nuke on the other uh, Japanese. Be that as yeah. it may, um, be that as it may. Um, um, so is Bannon still a factor in this? Uh, I think that remains to be seen. You know, uh, once once you're you're not in the administration, you are not in the administration. Uh, once you're out of government, you're you're out of government. The ability for you to have input is is not only um, uh, regulated uh, by law, <laughs> um, it's it's also regulated by tradition. Well, we know the president has no real appreciation for tradition so thankfully there's some laws in place to basically uh keep keep mr bannon and and uh and people like him at bay but you know that's only going to go so far in the, in the long run i i think it remains to be seen how much he's going to be able to do from uh from from the breitbart offices across town from the from the from the white house but um uh he he's he's gone but definitely not uh not for not forgotten so alan moore help me out here because I, I, I feel like I'm watching P.T. Barnum take me for a sucker in all this. When Steve Bannon left the White House, he was saying stuff like, oh, they don't know what they're doing. I've got, I have built up a machine, and I'm going to turn this machine on full blast on this administration. They don't know what they've done. I, you know, I want to create this. And then we interview from what I'm gathering and he pretty much said that oh yeah 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 I'm the architect of what is going to make Trump successful I am doing it better from outside than from within this is going to make America great again are we being are we in fact being played for suckers or how do we even make sense of all this or can we I I don't know how we make sense of all of this I, I don't have the answer to that I think, as Ken says, it remains to be seen what kind of influence that 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 Bannon ultimately has. Um, uh, the the new chief of staff, uh, uh, John Kelly, has created some reasonably effective so far firewalls between um, what staff people get access to the president and when and under what terms and what outsiders get access to the president and when phone calls to the president have to pass through uh, Kelly's operation. Um, now, 
that is not to say that the president can't and won't pick up his phone and and in order to the person when he picks up the phone who says yes mr president get and then then he says get so and so on the phone for me that's how that that service exists at at the white house and we know that the president is continue is going to continue to have some outreach and um, Bannon and he, Bannon, pardon me, Alan, but Bannon and Bannon predicts that as much that that John Kelly will be limited in his abilities to to uh, to keep the president and his communication style in check. Sorry. Well, you know, and I, I I'm <laughs> I'm the last person to say, oh no, Bannon is wrong. Um, uh, we also know that that Trump loves loyalty, and Bannon so far has been able to kind of navigate reasonably well the waters of being loyal to the president, even though the president had come to accept and realize that Bannon was a very disruptive influence, not well liked inside, not trusted, and out for his own self along with the president. So um, uh, the, the, the famous Time magazine cover uh, featuring Bannon early in the administration and sort of des- describing him as the architect uh, of the victory, um, uh, really supposedly, reportedly, logically ate at the president who said, no, 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 I was the architect. Um, and then he, causing him even later to say publicly, yeah, he came in after I had the nomination sewed up and, you know, and was helpful. So very dismissive in that regard, on the one hand. On the other hand, it, there's lots of evidence that Bannon sort of was feeding uh, some of uh, the president's darker tendencies and instincts um, and knew very cleverly how to sort of play that. Um, and he's a, is supposed, Bannon's supposedly a, a student of history. Um, president Trump is decidedly not. But that doesn't but we, mean they might not ar- arrive at the same place. And Bannon could could uh, provide context and but Alan, encourage let, let in, Trump. But Alan, let me let me jump in here real quick because one of the things that everybody fails to mention is, and and again, these 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 are still you know largely secondhand uh, information that we're getting through the administration. Yep. Is that you know the loyalty may be there, but Bannon was a big part of the leak machine going on within the West wing. And we, nobody talks about that within the Trump administration. What is it that they well, are scared of? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it, it, it certainly, it, 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 there's, there's, there's lots of reporting to that effect. We don't know who all the leakers were. I, I don't doubt that, that, that Bannon was a leaker. I don't doubt that there were others um, uh, who were leakers. Um, Bannon, there were two things he said in, in that, or, or one, one thing he's two things he said in the interview. One was when asked, so have you talked to the president? And he said, yes. And he said, how often? He said once. And then I heard some commentary saying, yeah, that's garbage. We don't know if it's garbage, but it's the kind of thing that if it's been multiple conversations, why would Bannon lie about it? It'd be much easier to say, I'm not going to get into the, the, the timing uh, uh, or frequency of my 
uh, of my conversations with the president. That's just I'm not going there. But when he says once, I, I'm my inclination is to believe him. So so back to the and that sort of reinforces the Ken point. When you're out, you're out. You don't have the regular access. You don't have the accidental or accidental on purpose uh, access. Um, uh, you don't have the ability to hand them a piece of paper and say, look at, read this tonight. And we can talk about it if, when you want to, um, it's, it, you're far, you're, you're far removed. It's really, really hard if you're not right there to, to have a huge impact. The yeah, other big thing, and don't just say one more thing here is that, that he did not deny that he Bannon felt that Jared Kushner should go, um, should have left. You don't want to mess with Trump's family. Other people can. The press does. Kushner has certainly been a lightning rod of sorts. If if I'm Bannon, I don't want to and, and want to maintain a relationship with the president. I don't want to go there. I don't want to leave the impression that I believe that Kushner was my enemy and that Kushner continues to be a liability. Uh he also made a point. He thought that Gary Cohn should have resigned rather than go public in his differences over the president's response to Charlottesville. Um, I think Cohn still enjoys not only the confidence of the president, but Cohn enjoys the confidence of a cadre of other folks inside the White House who say, gee, Gary Cohn is still here He's a public servant. He's serving the greater good, and I take comfort from that. And if Cohn were to leave, that would trouble me a lot. But Admiral, Admiral Ken, though, I want to go back to something that, that, that Alan said when he makes a comment about uh, you know, Steve Bannon during his interview was asked by Charlie Rose how many times you talked to the president. He said once, and just about anybody in America hears that and goes, yeah, right. Should we not be troubled with the fact that we have to second guess literally everything that has to do with the Oval Office? Should we not be troubled by that? I, I think the danger here is getting caught up in in uh, in, in minutia. Um, so lo- I'm, I'm looking at it from this perspective. All right? Doesn't it add, but McKen, no. doesn't it add to a larger problem? No, I think we're looking at the wrong things. If you're looking at that as as, as evidence of anything. You know, so here's a man who has basically been inside the inner circle of the president of the United States. At you know, at 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 some level, uh, President Trump um, had uh, uh, this this man had President Trump's confidence, and apparently he still shares uh, a good relationship with the president by by the president's comments to the media, and as as well as Steve Bannon's comments. Do 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 I do I think that the president uh, and Steve Bannon uh, are still having regular and ongoing communication. Yeah, I, I, I would probably guess that I do. Does it matter? No, I don't think it does. I don't think it matters one whit because, one, the president has already shown who he is, what kind of guy he is uh, on uh, almost on every other day since, since he took office. Steve Bannon uh, did not – uh, make the president who he was. Steve Bannon made the president feel okay about who he was. You know, one of the other things that came out in that interview was the fact that at one point after the Billy Bush interview, um, 
the president talked to members of his inner circle and asked them, what do you think your chances are? Uh, Reince Priebus allegedly said, hey, you, you got two choices, you know, quit now or, or, or suffer the world's greatest defeat. And, Steve, and he went across the room and get to Steve Bannon and says, you know what, you're 100 percent. You're going to make it. You're going to be OK. So, uh, again, Steve Bannon made, made Donald Trump feel OK to be Donald Trump or was one of the people doing that. Do I think he, you know, he still has ongoing communication with him? Hell yeah, I do. Do I think it matters one bit? Not not one iota. What matters to me is what the president's going to do about North Korea. What matters to me is what the president who and who the president is talking to about um uh, uh dealing with North Korea. Do I think that uh that that I'll, the the substance of that conversation with Steve Bannon is worthy of conversation? Absolutely, because Steve Bannon thinks that all of the previous national security advisors from President uh, uh, Bush 41 all the way through President Obama were, quote, a bunch of idiots, unquote. So, so again, let's, that's let's the conversation about, you want to hear about. Let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that for a second, Admiral Ken. You know, while all this is going on, while I was down there in Houston and dealing with the storms here in Florida, uh, Kim Jong-un continued to just poke at the global community by not only uh, launching several test missiles, but also doing a large-scale hydrogen bomb test that measured 6.3 on a Richter scale in California. Uh, are, are, are we getting close to the point where diplomacy is, is – the, the clock on diplomacy is running out, that this has no other way but to go to – some sort of even minor armed conflict. So again, you know, part of the the conversations that took place over the weekend out in Annapolis, um, um, you know, with with people who had been in in, uh, in in that theater for quite some time, um, we 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 came to a really interesting uh, conclusion. One, there's only one real change in the dynamic that has existed between North Korea. I uh, maybe two two changes that have existed in the in the dynamic between North Korea and the United States or the West. Change number one: uh, the the North Koreans have have finished the development of their nuclear program. Uh, you know that was that was a given. I think that at some point they were going to get that done. I think anybody that's been paying attention to this for more than more than a couple of years knew that at some point uh, Kim Jong Un was going to be able to say, "Hey, guess what? I'm part of the nuclear club now." So no big shakes there. The other big change is that now there's someone in the West who's who's playing. You know what? Uh, you you've got more dog poop on your shoe than I do, and and engaging that and engaging in that kind of rhetoric. That is the biggest change here. So they've been hurling insults at us for the better part of the last 25 or 30 years. We basically said, yeah, so what? Go away. You 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 you're bugging me. Now we've got somebody on on this side. That does not take being disrespected well. He does not like it and is not going to put up with it. So is the is the clock on diplomacy running out? Yeah, I think it is. Do I think it needs to at this point? No. If anyone has ever, ever, ever seriously looked at the the effects of a, even a limited nuclear war, you need to be scared out of your mind about that. And everybody needs to be screaming. You know, don't even talk about uh, military options. You need to be talking about putting an army of diplomats on a plane over to that part of the world and talking as much as you can. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a war fighter, but I tell you what, 
There's a lot of people who think that people in uniform live to go to war. Trust me, people, we don't. We're, we want that so, to be the opposite of last resort. So, Alan Moore, you know, we, we hear the rhetoric coming out of the president of the White House, and it seems to be counterbalanced by uh, the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense on this. But the, the, the question still remains. We hear the rhetoric coming out of the president. Are we getting to the point where we're now taking away from our global credibility, even more so with the crying wolf of better not do it? You do it one more time. We're going to come and oh, you, oh, oh, one more time. Are we getting to that point? Are we getting to the line in the sand now? Well, uh <laughs> There's the line in the sand piece, and then there's the crying wolf piece, and it's sort of different things. Line in the sand uh, says you cross that line, and there will be major consequences. And the, the president is trying to appears to be trying to draw that line. Um, crying wolf is a fake line in the sand. Um, and 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 I, I, I'm with Ken here, where I, I think that that we have to acknowledge that North Korea is now, sadly, a member of the club. They've got nuclear weapons, um, and we don't know that they have the ability to deliver them through ICBMs. We don't know that they've put all those pieces together yet, but the fact that they have nuclear weapons means they're a member of the club, and there are other delivery mechanisms besides um, uh, an ICBM. You put them on a boat. You put them on a conventional plane. Um, none of that's easy. None of that's given. And I think that the, 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 the sad part of future diplomacy may be that what we're having conversations about how to live with a nuclear-armed North Korea rather than how to convince them it's not in their interest to continue to develop uh, these weapons. The, we've pretty much run out of, 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 of sanction options. There are some new ones. They're not nothing, the ones that the UN embraced. Um, they're talked about, referred to as watered-down sanctions. China is simply, and neither is Russia, simply going to choke off and halt all trade to ruin the North Korean economy because China doesn't want a completely unstable neighbor of millions and millions of people with (laughs) nuclear weapons, but it's more the people they don't want. They don't want millions of North Koreans coming across into China and disrupting that whole region of China. Uh, And Russia doesn't, Russia doesn't either. Um, But, but so they're going to continue to provide some oil uh, and and not try to choke them off entirely, even though the, the, the big new sanction is no natural gas uh, to, to, to North Korea and no purchase of textiles, which is the, which is an important export uh, and and hard currency earner uh, for North Korea. They, there's real hardship there. But it, I, I think we fool ourselves if we think that that kind that that economic hardship is going to cause North Korea to give up something it has been pursuing um, with a single-mindedness of focus for decades, which is their own nuclear capability. Back in the 90s, 90s, um, there was a famine 
that uh, that that uh, that was, uh, I guess, impacting North Korea for quite some time. And I think it was during the Clinton administration that um, we we agreed to, um, um, you know, uh, lift partially lift some of the sanctions uh, on them if they would uh, cease development of uh, of their weapons weapons capability. Of course, they agreed to it, and as soon as the famine uh, was uh, was relieved, they went right back at it. Um, this has been a quest uh, of the Kims uh, for quite some time. Um, the real question, you know, I think is, okay, now that you've got it, you know, what do you, what do you think you, you, you're going to do with it other than threatening to use it? Uh, I think you, you may not have known this, but you know, they, they, uh, they, they shot a missile over Japan. Um, during uh, the, uh, the the hurricanes that were going on here in the country, that was a big deal. Uh, people that uh, U.S. U.S. Uh, government people that that, uh, that live in Japan uh, got the take cover uh, notice sent on their cell phones. Duck and take cover notice sent on their cell phones when when uh, when that happened. So we're talking some pretty serious things here, kids. And um, uh, my my hope is that that cool heads will prevail. And that we can we can find a diplomatic way out of this because if we don't, quite frankly, more than just um, the people in that part of the region will feel the impact, and and I'm not just talking about economically. Yeah, yeah I, I hear you. Hey, um, last last question on on this is, can we see Secretary Tillerson, Secretary Mattis? And National Security Advisor uh, McMaster, can can they be the cooler heads that make diplomacy the right run on this, Alan Moore? Well, diplomacy, yes, but I think it's and 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 we're never going to give that up. We can talk tough. We're not going to drop a nuke on uh, uh, on North Korea. I I hope. Uh, I, I mean, I really and I really don't think that's going to happen. So you squeeze North Korea, you try to discuss with them. But in the meantime, I think we're beginning to come to the reality, which we've been coming to for a long time, that they got they have weapons and they're improving their ability to to deliver those weapons. And 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 we're now likely to have to accept them into the club and figure out whether we can get them to agree to certain kinds of behaviors and protocols and how to keep those things uh, controlled and safe and and then accept along with that assuming that's true the fact that we will almost certainly have to watch Japan and South Korea develop a nuclear capability as well it 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 just hard for me to imagine that that would not occur um have, have, have uh, in, we entered in, in, into in that environment? Have, have we now entered into a new reality that is pan-Asian proliferation as opposed to global non-proliferation? I well, I think I think there is going to be a degree of pan-Asian proliferation at least to those two countries, um, uh, because I can't imagine South Korea and Japan. Uh, Notwithstanding, you know, sort of enhanced by the the overflight, um, uh, not um, beginning to pursue their own weapons, and and uh, uh, the 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 U.S. role in that will be fascinating. So um, I guess this question, they are Alan, our, they are our allies. All right, but Alan, let me ask you this question: 
if we roll over on South on North Korea being a member of the club, which we may not have a choice, how does that send a message to others like Iran saying, "What are they going to do? We we've got this." Does does does, a, does this send a message to Iran that hey, if you continue to develop uh, nuclear power, we won't stop you? I don't know what it does with with regard to Iran. You know, I'm not a I'm not a, 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 a I wasn't particularly enthusiastic of the deal we cut with Iran because it seemed to me that it left the path clearly open uh, for Iran uh, to uh, to get nuclear weapons on a delayed basis in return for recovery of billions of dollars of their resources, which we had uh, uh, kept away from them. So I think they their, their feeling was we can still pursue this road um, and we can either we can either resist a deal with America, speed up uh, or go full speed ahead on the nuclear proposition and possibly invite an attack from Israel. Not clear, but possibly. Or we can cut a deal with America um, and make it reasonably transparent and say we're we're putting all this stuff on the shelf. We're reducing our capacity. You're going to give us our money back. We're going to improve things at home. But uh, these things have... Uh, have, uh, have expiration dates on them, and we don't give up our right down the road. We don't need those weapons um, for for any immediate military purpose, and we really do need our our resources in terms of our domestic economy. Um, with if if North Korea has a weapon, I don't I don't know that that suddenly says to Iran, hey, we want to go renegotiate our deal. They're not vulnerable to attack from North Korea. And, and at least the people in Iran seem to be rational by common, ordinary human standards. Whereas in North Korea, we have this feeling that we're dealing with, with an unstable uh, uh, person who, with whom we really can't have. And nobody seems to be able to have conversations that are in the sort of norm of civilized uh, uh, interaction and communication. But, this, but doesn't that send a message, Admiral Ken, to the hardcore supporters of the Ayatollahs in Iran that say, all right, all we have to do is act a little crazy, say some crazy stuff, be completely oppressive of our people, which we were at one time, and we can have our nuclear program. And then, not, while, not, while Bibi, not while Bibi Netanyahu's got an Air Force that doesn't. I, I, is is that the case? I mean, or I, I think I think I think the one big difference, quite frankly, the difference, quite frankly, uh, in in the uh, the two examples that you're citing, are one, um, uh, uh, North Korea has a big, 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 large neighbor who's got a lot of weight on the world stage, uh, as well as militarily. Uh, who is also who is also shown uh, by example that they are willing to intervene militarily in what goes on in North Korea um, compared to the situation that Iran finds itself in. Um, Iran has got no big brother looking out for him. Um, that's a that's that is a next door neighbor. Uh, they do have um, a a neighbor 
who has shown that they have a willingness to reach out and touch a neighbor who might uh, d- develop a nuclear weapon that would be, without anyone's doubt, targeted toward them. Um, I think that um, the president of the United States, um, I think probably this president probably would not try to do anything to hold uh, the Israelis at bay should that happen. Matter of fact, he might even use them as his proxy to solve that problem for him. So I, I, I really think that it's, it's an apples and oranges comparison on, a, on, on several different levels. I agree with Alan. Well, the deal that we signed was probably not in the best interest, uh, long-term best interest, but it was, it was, a, a, uh, it was a, a five- to seven-year tactical move to basically hold Iran, uh, hold Iran at bay. And I think the, 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 the big insurance policy that we've got on the back end of that is Israel's propensity to act militarily in its own self-interest. Um, uh, Alan Moore, you had something you wanted to add? Yeah, and, and I think it's also important for us to, to understand, in addition to that, that, that economic sanctions um, imposed against Iran made a massive difference and really yep. did yep. Inf- influence in a negative way the economy and the people of Iran and its leadership felt a duty and a responsibility and a, and a, and a need under that pressure to make a, a host of concessions. Sanctions against North Korea just don't, they're, they're limited, first of all, because it's such a backward uh, and poor economy, just don't make the same kind of difference. So, and nobody followed. Uh, and nobody yeah, followed. Yeah. Right, but here's the problem, though, that, and, and this is the question I have for you, Alan, is it seems to me that it's been, instead of carrot and stick, it's always been a whole crapload of carrots going to North Korea. I don't, I don't know about carrots. Yeah, I don't see the carrots to North Korea. The, the Sanctions don't work. <laughs> Sanctions don't work. Well, we don't take any, well. Any no, control. it's what you're saying. No, it's a bunch of sticks that didn't work. Yeah, there aren't there aren't any carrots. Um, the carrot is the self uh, generated carrot of feeling like they can do this on their own. It's a remarkably um, self sufficient, although horrendously uh, uh, restricted uh, economy. Um, that doesn't rely on the rest of the world like most of the world does. As a result, there's there's poverty um, uh, b- beyond belief. There's oppression. Um, we we try these sanctions, these carrots that have effect on on other countries like Iran, um, uh, and and uh, and they just say, fine, we don't care. We we've got the ability to pursue this objective. And it is the objective we care about the most of anything in the world. Right. And so, but we, we're not giving them any carrots. Their carrot is their own carrot that they're generating at home. Right. Well, I want to take I, I want to take a couple of minutes uh, before we end, real quick, and, and I want to pivot back to the storms for a second, and I want to take moderator privilege. Um, for those of you who listen to us, we rarely make a plea on this show for much of anything. Um, But I'm going to change that again today real quick. Um, For those who listened at the beginning of the show or downloading this as a podcast will have heard uh, the, the, the mass 
humanitarian crisis that I saw in Houston and the crisis that we're continuing to see with Hurricane Irma in the Caribbean and here in Florida is just mind-boggling. And there are several organizations out there that are really stepping up and trying to make it at least somewhat bearable, but if not, at least sustain life in some way. One of those organizations is the American Red Cross. Uh, I would ask that if, if you're a supporter of the show and you have the opportunity, whether it's $2, $20, 200 2000 $2 million, if you listen to the show, I can tell you that the American Red Cross, for every dollar donated, 91 cents of that goes to the people in need and to response activities. The American Red Cross right now is hemorrhaging money and is going to continue to hemorrhage. I ask that one to redcross.org and donate. Uh, There are other organizations that are equally as good. This one just kind of has a global effect to it. And I ask if you have, if you're a supporter of the show and, and you have it in your opportunity, please, please, please take, take a moment. It only takes a couple of seconds to donate to an organization that is part of the relief effort, but one that I'm taking privilege on is the American Red Cross. I urge you, please, to support the relief effort. It is needed now more than ever. I can tell you from firsthand experience, it won't be money wasted. And I'd like to add on to that, Justin. There are a number of ways that American Red Cross has opened up uh, for you to make donations. You can go through PayPal. You can go. You can even go through iTunes, which is how we did it. Uh, none of that money. Facebook. Is taken off, uh, Facebook. So LinkedIn. Uh, right. These are these are our fellow Americans. They're out there hurting. Uh, if you've never gone through a hurricane and count yourself among the blessed, it is a traumatic. It is an awful experience. And uh, our fellow countrymen are, are needing us right about now. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. So, again, we, we don't do this often, but this one, I think, deserves the exception. So, again, please, please, if you have the opportunity, give something as little or as much as you can to the American Red Cross or another relief organization you feel deserving. Uh, but please give in some way. That's what they need most right now is financial support. On behalf of Admiral Kim Paradine, on behalf of Alan Moore, and on behalf of Dan Lipner, who joined us for a short time, I am your host and moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next week. Uh, more than likely from a remote show, I will probably still be in Florida uh, on the recovery, but I'll always try and make time for the show. We'll be back next week. Uh, stay with us, and again, give to American Red Cross, uh, redcross.org. Have a great week, America, and be safe. Bye-bye. This is Backroom Politics.